Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. This show is a part of the TrueNorth.fm podcast network. In this particular episode, I want to talk about the classical virtue of fortitude and its relationship to teaching, students, teachers, the classroom. You probably know that fortitude is one of the four classical virtues that sometimes is called courage. There were four classical virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, often listed in that order, with prudence being kind of a governing virtue, because prudence is that virtue that helps us to understand, by the use of reason, reality. And then the other virtues help us to bring our, uh, to engage reality wisely in terms of curbing our passions, temperance, holding on to something good, fortitude, and knowing how to justly engage the world, to proper person, proper time, right context, uh, justice and prudence work together in that way. Fortitude. Well, it comes from a Latin word. You probably can hear the word fort or fortify in fortitude. The, the Latin word is fortitudo, but there's also an adjective, fortis, which simply means strong. So it's almost as if this this virtue describes a strong, fortified soul. And what makes it strong? Well, what makes it strong is that fortitude is holding on and defending itself against any threats to that which is good. Fortitude is willing to suffer injury. Fortitude is willing to endure but for a purpose, for a reason, for a good reason. And it's because fortitude knows something good and wants to attain or keep something that is good. So it's prepared to even die for that which is good. And you know, fortitude is sometimes, or bravery or courage is applied to soldiers being willing to die for their country. But in the tradition, it's made clear that while it would be willing to sacrifice itself even to the point of death for a just cause for something good, it's normally going to suffer injuries of various kinds, enduring challenges and suffering because of the good that it wants to protect and hold on to. So let's think about this for a moment. If you're going to be courageous, it's going to be because you have a vision for or are already in possession of something that is very good. It could be your family. It could be your country. It could be your spouse. I will defend against all enemies my wife. Well, I'll suffer for her uh, because of my great love for her, because of such what a great good she is for me. And this therefore brings up another really important master ideal, which is love. To know something that is good is to love it. These two things are intertwined. So what do students want and love or desire that is good? If they can want and love and desire something that is good, then they will naturally have fortitude. They will want to keep that good and they will defend that good. 
So I once, I once recall reading an old book on the history of education. I think it was published in the 1940s. And this author, whose name I forget at the moment, opens the book by saying education is preparing students to die. It's a preparation for the next life. And so he was opening with this ideal that even in education, students need to confront reality as it as it truly is, which means that there is a time when we are going to pass on. And so how will we live, live well in light of that inevitable fact? Uh, it's, it's similar to the old monastic maxim of think on death daily. Uh, it's similar to what Christ says when he says, if any man would be my disciple, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So those in the Christian tradition know that we, as it were, we might put a cross around our neck. We bear a cross. We know that we are given at time crosses, that we are to walk in the footsteps of Christ, which means there will be times when we suffer as we follow him. And paradoxically, maybe even mysteriously, we welcome that for the fellowship that we enjoy. It's hard to describe how that can be, but it's true. So the Apostle Paul says, it's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. So will a student be willing to suffer for something that is good in your classroom? Will a student have that kind of fortitude? How will you develop that kind of courage or fortitude or bravery in your student? Well, the answer, I think, is fairly self-evident. All the virtues that we would seek to impart to our students have to be modeled by us as teachers. We have to be brave and courageous. If the students, if, we, if there's any chance really that the students are going to become courageous. So we have to be models that the students will imitate. And this means that we have to love the good. There must be something that we teach that we love. There must be something that we teach that is actually, truly, and really good, such that any human being getting a glimpse of that thing would want it. I'll give you an illustration with working with younger students. When a first grader or a kindergartner can hear a teacher read with, uh, with, with fluency and love and enthusiasm, say, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or hear their own mother read these stories, you, you know, they, they're, they're enchanted and, they're, and they time travel and they're taken away in their imagination and they live in the world of Narnia. And they love being there. And without being able to even express it, they love that their mother can read such stories to them out of these magical things we call books. And the teacher can do the same thing. And naturally what happens is that student loves the good of, well, of story, loves the good of the book and its texture and its smell, loves reading and wants to read, wants that skill. And so that student will display courage because that student will want that good and will do the work that's necessary, will endure the suffering that's necessary, studying phonemes and doing the exercises that are necessary to learn to read because they're in love with something that is good and they're going to hold on to it and they're going to achieve it 
and they will defend themselves against threats to achieving that wonderful goal of being able to read those crazy characters that we call the alphabet that result in transformative stories. Well, this is not unlike what we see in athletics. In fact, in ancient Greek education, the boys would, would early on wrestle in hot sand on a palestra without clothes on. They would wrestle with one another. And, you know, if you've seen wrestling and followed wrestling, uh, my brothers-in-law in high school were great wrestlers. Uh, one of my brothers-in-law, I think he finished number three in the 125-pound category in Pennsylvania State Wrestling Championship. So I followed wrestling, followed him in, you know, those years ago. And to learn to wrestle requires some suffering. Uh, my brother-in-law's name is Gordon. And one of the things that made Gordon good is that he studied and worked very hard to master a few moves. There's a move called a Gramby. It's an escape move where you kind of can roll out of a hold. And he perfected that and he worked at it over and over again. And he was an escape artist wrestling. But there's something else that Gordon did in order to become a great wrestler that required fortitude. After wrestling practice, which was grueling, a couple hour affair, you know, where they would wrestle and wrestle and so forth and do various drills and exercises. Well, after wrestling practice, Gordon, in the evenings, it might be eight or nine o'clock, would go for a 45 minute run after wrestling practice. And he would do this virtually every night. And he became, well, in extremely good physical condition. And he used to say, that he, to himself, I'm better prepared. I think I am confident that I'm better prepared than my opponent. I'm in better physical condition than my opponent because I work harder. I've endured all the pain and suffering of going to the wrestling practice and doing the running. He would often win in the third periods when his, his opponent was out of gas and he still was strong. Well, in this Greek ideal, the, the boys would wrestle uh, you know, out in the sand, and then they would come into the classroom, and another kind of wrestling would occur, a wrestling that occurs when you're learning together, when you're studying together, when, you're, when one mind is sharpening another. There's a kind of wrestling that occurs when you, well, are learning phonics as a young child. And there's another kind of wrestling that's similar to that that you undergo when, say, you learn Latin grammar and you learn declensions and verb conjugations and the parts of speech and how they work in a foreign language like Latin. And you begin to understand what a predicate nominative is. And why would you do that? Why would you suffer the pain of learning Latin and all the work that goes into it? Well, the teacher models something beautiful and good that you would like when the teacher can recite Latin poetry or scripture like in principio erat verbum, et verum apud deum, et verbum deus est, or erat est. This is attractive, and you would want to have that skill. So just as a wrestler would want to have a skill, students will want to have the skills that are embodied and manifested in teachers. And other good things besides skills, knowledge of ideas and how things work together. So when students get older and they're studying with a, a, you know, a biology teacher or a historian, 
and can and they're learning how ideas work together and they're modeled by this teacher who can integrate ideas across time and place and geography um, that is a good thing that becomes attractive and students will display fortitude in order to achieve it so in the tradition and Aquinas in particular says that fortitude has two aspects a a, a passive aspect and a active aspect. Fortitude is willing to patiently or passively suffer pain for the sake of something that is good, that it wants to cling to or achieve. So it can even do so cheerfully and without sadness and confusion, Aquinas says, because of the love for something good that it would keep. Now think about Roman soldiers when they would travel uh, would carry a pike on their back, which was used to form a fort when all of the soldiers would gather and camp for the evening. Each soldier would take this pike that was on his back and pound it into the, into the dirt, and they would form a wooden fence around them in a particular way to defend them. Each soldier would help form a fort to defend themselves at night. And so students are willing to put their own stakes in the ground and defend themselves against any threat that would keep them from learning. And they're inspired by this, by, well, their centurion, their captain, their teacher, who's doing the same, because the captain also would be carrying a pike. The, the captain also is a soldier, and so is the teacher also a student. Because isn't it true that even you as a teacher continue to be a student? After all, the word student means to have studium or zeal, zealousness for something that is true, good, and beautiful. And you too are still pursuing and you still too need fortitude. Uh, I'd like to read a passage from the great writer A.G. Sertolange in his book, The Intellectual Life. And for those of you who are viewing the video, you can see it now because I'm holding up the cover. But he says that uh, love is really what is animating all the virtues, and that's true, therefore, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, to learning. Here's what he says. What is the source of this unity of life? Love. Tell me what you love, and I will tell you what you are. Love is the beginning of everything in us. And the starting point, which is common to knowledge and practice, cannot fail to make the right paths, both in a certain measure, interdependent. Truth visits those who love her, who surrender to her, and this love cannot be without virtue. For this reason, in spite of his possible defects, the man of genius at work is already virtuous. It would be suffice for his holiness if he were not completely his true self. And then he says, the true springs up in the same soil as the good. Their roots communicate. So love is always going to be at the beginning of any academic work, and it's going to be also what sustains it. And it's going to be what gives birth to all of the virtues, including fortitude. So as a teacher, I ask you, do you love what you teach? Does it shine from your face? If it's Latin that you teach, can your students palpably see your love of Latin, such that the good that Latin is, as it exists in poetry and literature and scripture, 
is so attractive that students are leading into it and wanting it the way uh, an aspiring wrestler wants to learn how to do the Granby. Again, we model virtue such that students are attracted to it. You must be full of fortitude if your students will have courage and fortitude themselves. But fortitude also has, in addition to a kind of passive quality to endure, it has an active quality. Just as the Romans would build a fort to defend themselves against any attack and be willing to suffer an attack, well, sometimes they would come out of the fort and attack the enemy. And so fortitude is willing to pounce on the evil threat when it has the opportunity to vanquish it. So what are the threats to courage in your classroom and to you personally as an ongoing student? Well, Aquinas lists the common ones and so does Pieper. And I have to just mention this book, which I'm now holding in front of the camera for those of you who are watching, The Four Cardinal Virtues by Joseph Pieper. Uh, excellent read on, these, on, the, on the virtues. Uh, well, Pieper, quoting Aquinas, lists some of these common obstacles to fortitude. One of the first is a stupor, or we, we could say stupidity, but it tends to mean something else in English. Stupor. You know what a stupor is, to be in a stupor? It means to be stupefied might be a better way of putting it in English. It means to be bewildered and blind and numb, such that you cannot see truth for what it really is. Another obstacle would be what we would simply call laziness. Fortitude is the opposite of those things. Fortitude, when it sees the threat of laziness, will fight against it or anything that would tempt us to distraction and trivial diversion from the important skill or idea or good thing that we would want to possess. So I'll conclude there. We have to model our own, even if it's a partial possession of something good, like Latin or poetry or history or biology, and for teachers of younger students, reading itself such that students are drawn with uh, a growing love for the beautiful good thing that is on display in our own lives, even though it's only partial because we're still growing, such that they will naturally push aside those threats, those obstacles, di those diversions that would keep them from possessing the good thing that you hold before them. I hope that's helpful to think of fortitude in that way. And I hope you'll be inspired to think more deeply about fortitude, to read Sertolange, The Intellectual Life, to read The Four Cardinal Virtues by Pieper, and to grow in your ability to cultivate courage or fortitude in your classrooms and with your students and children. This is Christopher Perrin. Thank you once again for watching or listening to this episode. I'll be back next time with another short episode on uh, the way we can better model the virtue of fortitude as teachers. Thanks so much.